This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. We begin in this half hour with some conversation around that. As Canada inches closer to approval of the AstraZeneca vaccine, news out of South Africa is a little worrying that they have a halted use of the AstraZeneca vaccine in South Africa because of some emerging evidence that that particular vaccine is really not at all that effective against the variant that has emerged there. And it's illustrative, I think, of some of the challenges we're going to be dealing with in the months and maybe even years ahead. But the good news is, you know, that we are working on solutions. Other vaccines like Pfizer and Moderna seem more effective against this variant. Companies, though, like AstraZeneca, Moderna, and others are already working on boosters to target some of these variants. So we'll have tools at our disposal, but it's a reminder that this is indeed a tricky foe we're up against. Joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome back to the program, Dr. Isaac Bogach, uh, infectious disease physician and scientist based out of the Toronto General Hospital. Dr. Bogach, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me back on. So, I, I mean, this is preliminary evidence. I mean, it's, it's not a conclusive set of findings, but it's enough to worry the South African government. What, what do you make of this, first of all? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, it, I don't have access to the data, but if you got to wonder that if it was really a situation where the vaccine was just not all that protective, such they, they would cancel or stop using this vaccine. There was probably there was probably more than a signal among the amongst the noise. There, there was probably yeah. something more significant. And you know, I, I think as you pointed out uh, importantly a minute ago, it it appears that the other vaccines have some degree of protection against that variant discovered in South Africa. Maybe not the same degree of protection as uh, they would have against other other uh, forms of COVID nineteen. But at least they do have some reasonable protection against that variant. And, and that's that's an extremely important point. I know with the AstraZeneca vaccine, I mean, it's not just, you know, countries like Canada hoping that it can make a difference here. It's it's seen as a, an option for a, a lot of uh, developing countries around the world. It's easier to store and transport. It's cheaper. Uh, so given that, that, you know, there's this potential issue with that vaccine, what, what kind of challenges does that pose to to global vaccination efforts? I, I still think that there's a, a role for it. And, and quite mm-hmm. frankly, if it indeed does demonstrate in, in real world settings to be safe and, and effective against COVID-19 that's not uh, related to the variant discovered in South Africa, it still has a huge role. But at the end of the day, too, it, it kind of it really sort of highlights that point that this virus, like all viruses, is, is mutating and we will need a booster shot at, at some point. And even though the other vaccines look like they're more protective against that variant that was discovered in South Africa. The question is for how long? And, you know, this might be a scenario where once a year or, you know, once every for every little bit of time, I don't know how long, maybe a year mm-hmm. or more, we'll, we'll need an update. We'll need a booster shot, just like we get a booster shot for uh, for influenza. So 
I think we need to see how this plays out. But for the for the foreseeable future, the, we still need to do everything, right? We still need to continue with uh, protecting ourselves, protecting our communities, creating safer indoor spaces. And we still, regardless of what vaccine is available to us in Canada, we, we need to roll out vaccines quickly, yeah. as quickly as possible, because variant or no variant, that's, that's really going to help protect us. Well, and I mean, you know, this variant aside, if we're talking about the, I guess, the, the original form of the virus uh, that, that we're still dealing with for the most part here and in other parts of the world, uh, you know, the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, we're seeing some pretty encouraging data on its effectiveness against that version of the virus. Uh, there's been some debate about how protective it is for, for the elderly, but we're seeing some some encouraging data come out on that side. So, you know, in terms of the vaccine uh, situation, I mean, it's still very much a, a glass half full kind of picture, isn't it? Yeah, I would I would totally agree with you on that. And, and like, I think we're in a position now where, quite frankly, whatever vaccine is available, be it Moderna, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, whatever we have available to us in Canada, like I, maybe it's too much information to share on the radio, but like I haven't got my vaccine yet. I can't wait to get my vaccine. Yeah. And quite frankly, I don't care which one it is. Like, whatever is available to me first, I'm going to say thank you very much and roll up my sleeve and get it, regardless of what, of which one it is. So um, and I think all of them have the potential to help. I still think that we will get boosters. And, there, you know, many of the companies are actually working on updated vaccines to account for these variants of concern. And I have no doubt in my mind that they'll be able to do so and do so quickly and successfully, just like they were uh, for for uh, we'll, we'll call it wild type uh, COVID nineteen, but um, yeah, you know it, it 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 you know people move and when people move around they bring uh, viruses and illnesses with them, including the variants of concern, and that's why we're seeing the spread of these uh, globally. And then of course we know that some of these variants of concerns, for example, the one from the United Kingdom that was discovered in the United Kingdom, that's a little bit more transmissible compared to, you know, the garden variety COVID-19 that that's, has existed in other places. And so you can sort of slowly see that take over as to be the more dominant strain. But, but really, I think it, like you said earlier, it boils down to the same point where the same rules apply, right? Yeah. Create safer indoor spaces, put on a mask indoors, spread apart, have better ventilated rooms, wash your hands. You know, like those rules will still protect us just like they have since, since March. And, uh, and the, the vaccines will still work. They might not be as effective, but they still will provide some protection. And that's what we need. In fact, I think there was a great statistic looking at any of the vaccines. And you look at people who are vaccinated uh, in all, all these trials, there were zero deaths, zero deaths. So they prevented really, really severe illness and death, regardless of variant or no variant. So I think that's an important thing that we shouldn't forget is it's not just do you get this infection, yes or no. It's does it actually prevent protect you from having a severe outcome as well. Yeah, and, and there's some really encouraging evidence on that. But as you mentioned, I mean, the, the question of does it prevent infection versus, you know, do, are we just making every case an asymptomatic case? Uh, you, you noted this today. So we've seen some encouraging data from Moderna, from AstraZeneca on this question. Now, now Pfizer has added to it. Are we getting a clear picture of, you know, to what extent these vaccines actually do prevent infection? Yeah, yeah, there's some growing evidence from Israel on this where you're seeing um, some early data that really demonstrates that not only do they lower your chances of getting infected with COVID-19, but if you're unlucky enough to get infected with COVID-19, they likely lower your risk of having a severe outcome. And they probably also reduce your risk of transmitting the infection 
to others. I don't think I could look anyone in the eye and tell them with a straight face how much it reduces the chance of transmitting the virus to others, but it probably will probably end up seeing that data emerge. And there's sort of early shreds of data and early arrows pointing in that direction. And again, like when we sort of take a step back and think about this, and you know, there is precedent for this, right? It's a respir- mm-hmm. it's a contagious respiratory virus. And you know, there's another contagious respiratory virus that we've dealt with for eons before this, and that was influenza. And, you know, we think about the flu vaccine as well. The flu vaccine, of course, it's not perfect, but it reduces your risk of getting the flu. And if you get the flu, it lowers the chances of you having a severe infection. And it probably also reduces the chances that you're going to transmit it to other people as well. And just in terms in, uh, of our vaccine role, I know you're involved in the Ontario Vaccine Task Force. I, I know there's some politics uh, around this issue that will still oh, yeah. steer clear. But um, are, are you hopeful, are you optimistic now that we're getting past some of these bumps that as we get at least into the latter part of February, into March, that we're really going to be able to ramp things up? Yeah, I, I am. And, and yeah, of course there's been bumps. And yeah, of course there's <laughs> there's been a lot of mud slinging on the yeah. political arena. Quite frankly, I just keep myself as clear of that as possible. Like at the end of the day, I'm a physician and a scientist, and uh, I don't have too much interest in in the political side of things, although you sort of tend to get caught up in that one way or another and not my favorite place to be. (laughs) But, but the, uh, you know, there was a predicted, there was a slowdown of Pfizer. We all saw it. We all heard it. They said it was going to be three to four weeks. Hey, guess what? It was three to four weeks. And now the, we're, we're hearing that those shipments are going to ramp up second week of February. There's a slowdown of Moderna. It's not you know, a tremendous slowdown in Moderna, but it is a slowdown in Moderna. It was supposed to be a couple of weeks. I'm pretty confident that we've heard from our federal authorities that it will be a couple of weeks and then it'll ramp back up. They've also outright stated that we're going to get the 4 million doses of Pfizer and the 2 million doses of Moderna by the end of the first quarter of 2021. I think it appears that we're on track for that. Now, no one likes these slowdowns. It's obvious. You know, it, it delays the expansion of these uh, vaccine programs. It makes the logistics more challenging trying to get vaccines out when you're not quite sure what's coming in and when it's coming in. But at the end of the day, if we get our 6 million doses by the first quarter of 2021, we'll be okay. We will be okay. It's not ideal, but we will be okay. And and then, you know, come late March and early April, get ready because the taps are really going to turn on then. Like this is where we really get much, much, much greater access. And you're going to see a more rapid expansion of these programs, which is important because we really need to start vaccinating other vulnerable populations outside of long-term care, especially elderly uh, people living in the community and uh, people with underlying medical conditions that would essentially put them at risk for having a severe COVID-19 infection. We really have to quickly reach out to to those individuals and vaccinate them. I really think by the summer, you know, we'll be in a position where maybe perhaps by the late summer, we really will be in a position where anyone who wants a vaccine will have access to one. And then there's a potential of maybe as as many as three more approvals coming, uh, you know, in the, in the coming weeks, even potentially over the next couple of months. So that that will certainly add to our, our arsenal too, won't it? Yeah, absolutely, it will. I and I I look forward to including that in the toolbox. But even without those, even with Moderna and Pfizer, we have enough access to vaccine to to vaccinate anyone who wants anyone who wants a vaccine will be able to have one, even with those two vaccines. But Certainly adding one or two or even three of those vaccines to the mix will just make this process that much more efficient. I think the key benefit of all three of those vaccines are the uh, cold chain, right? Those are way easier to put into, for example, 
a pharmacy or a primary care clinic or someplace like that. This is, you know, they just need to require conventional refrigeration and they're a, a more stable. Uh, so I think it just, it just helps with mass vaccine programs. Having said that, in the worst case scenario, if we didn't get access to those, we could still do a lot of good with just the Pfizer and the Moderna. And, and you know, we can move Moderna. We'll leave it there. Dr. Bogosh, appreciate the insight. Uh, as always, thanks for making some time for us here. Oh, I think we lost the connection there. All right, Dr. Isaac Wilgodge, infectious disease uh, physician and scientist based out of the Toronto General Hospital, as mentioned. Uh, he uh, was one of the nine members of the Ontario Vaccine Task Force. And I think he makes an interesting point, right? There's understandable frustration at the moment from Canadians, from the provinces. Things are going to get better. Maybe we're not going to get quite to the point that it's, it's where we think it should be but it's going to improve. So are we ready? And if we get into a situation where we got additional approvals, you know, we're going to have to sort all of this out. I think it would be great to enlist pharmacies and sort of figure out which vaccines are going to go where, which groups are we going to prioritize with which vaccines, uh, you know, where are we going to distribute these? We got to have all of that in place. So hopefully we're, we're doing all that planning. Why don't we have more vaccines right now? Uh, the government says everything's on track. Everything's going to work out. Everything's going to be fine. The opposition, you know, much different message. That things are a mess. It's the government's fault. So who's right? Well, maybe both sides have valid points here. Uh, because so much has led up to right now. And there's been a real scramble, not just with the Canadian government, governments right around the, the world. Uh, to have contracts in place with the companies making these vaccines, developing these vaccines, to try to be at the front of the line, to try to build up some domestic capacity. So there are a lot of different factors at play here in terms of where Canada fits in globally, what we have in terms of uh, vaccine manufacturing in Canada, the decisions the government made last year. A lot has played into the situation we're in now and where we're likely to be in, in a couple of months and in six months from now. So everyone's trying to navigate all of this and trying to cut through some of the partisan spin on both sides to really get an understanding, well, how did we get here? Well, a great place to start uh, is this uh, new article in McLean's magazine, mclean's.ca, which takes a, a real deep dive into some of the background here, some of the decisions that were made or not made, some of the balls that were dropped, some of the global, global circumstances we're having to cope with. Uh, so joining us to talk a bit more about uh, all of this is the author of this piece, who spent a lot of time asking these questions, trying to get some answers. Nick taylor Vasey is Associate Editor at McLean's Magazine, again, uh, mclean's.ca. Nick, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. So when you're tasked with, or you task yourself with, uh, getting to the bottom of the story, I mean, where do you even begin on something as, as big as this? Uh, well, you make uh, interview requests to just about everybody <laughs> you might want to talk to because you know it's probably going to take a while for them to say yes. <laughs> um, because everyone, you know, everyone on the other side of this storytelling uh, is in the middle of the hardest job they've ever had, and that goes for, you know, uh, people who are making the vaccines, people trying to buy the vaccines, the opposition who are uh, raising questions about the vaccines. Uh, everybody's got about a thousand things on the go. And so uh, it took a couple of months, you know, to actually get get answers to a bunch of questions. And of course, there are a bunch of questions that don't yet have answers um, because the government is being pretty tricky about uh, 
transparency measures related to these yeah. uh, contracts they've signed. But uh, uh, basically, it's yeah, it's start early and uh, and and remind people often that uh, that you want to tell the story. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm looking. I've remarked before that this is probably the most important thing we've asked uh, of government, and it's one of the hardest things government has ever had to do in terms of everything else we're dealing with at the moment in containing this virus, but then getting these vaccines, rolling out these vaccines. But all of that said, it, it shouldn't and doesn't let the government off the hook because it's possible to do a good job. It's possible to not do a good job on something like this, and I think that's what Canadians are trying to assess at the moment. But there are a lot of different factors at play here, aren't there? There are, yeah. I mean, you have a whole bunch of different relationships uh, that didn't start when the pandemic started. You know, they, they pre-existed that, uh, that global pandemic. And uh, in a lot of cases, I think Canada was at a bit of a disadvantage from the get-go. Um, if, you, if you look not even too deep, you know, or not even between the lines on um, some of the, uh, the proposals or budget recommendations that come from the pharmaceutical industry, you'll see that some of the larger companies in that sector don't exactly have a great relationship with the federal government right now. Um, they're not exactly lining up to invest to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on new facilities in Canada. And that, again, that predates the pandemic. Um, the federal government right now is moving towards regulatory reform that uh, that they hope will reduce drug prices in Canada, which is great news for provincial governments who have um, pretty scary uh, you know, deficit situations and, and debt situations. Um, and then you have the pharmaceutical industry saying, well, that's not going to work for us, and so we need to meet somewhere in the middle. And as that fight plays out, of course, you, you don't have a whole lot of domestic production capacity, at least for the companies that for which that would, would matter greatly right now. Yeah, and, and that, that's been an interesting issue because, and, and you talk about a lot of this in your piece, that there are companies, institutes in, in Canada who you know, are saying that we had a tough time getting Ottawa's attention, we could have been a part of the solution on that front, so there's that side of it, but part of it too, are, you know, these are, are decisions and foundations that go back many, many years in terms of you know, which pharmaceutical companies do business here, what they do here, what they do in other countries, so you know, part of this maybe could have been addressed in in a better way over the last, uh, you know, eight months or so. But, um, you know, a lot of it was kind of what we were stuck with, wasn't it? Yeah, that's true. Um, although you did mention um, the, or you alluded to Providence Therapeutics, Calgary-based yeah. company, um, developing an mRNA vaccine, which is the same technology used by both Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech. Uh, and, they asked for uh, what in the scheme of COVID spending was a relatively paltry $35 million to help kickstart clinical trials. Uh, at that point, Providence said, this is you know early last year in the pandemic, that they were probably only a, a month or two behind Moderna. And they waited for months. Uh, and then only in August, right before Parliament was prorogued, did they get the response that uh, they wouldn't see that funding. And eventually they got a few million bucks from the National Research Council, and now they are in phase one trials. But you do wonder, what was the decision at that point to not give 35 million bucks to a company that, even if the vaccine didn't work out, could have produced a vaccine in Canada that was using the same technology as the same two vaccines that were then approved first by Health Canada? It, it's one of those things where you, um, you'd love to have an alternate you know, history play out just just to see what Providence could have done and where they'd be now. 
Well, I'm curious too, because part of this story is what happened with CanSino and, and this deal that Canada had with this Chinese pharmaceutical company to uh, jointly research their vaccine, produce some of it here. And, and you know, the concern that a lot of people have is that that just kind of had repercussions throughout everything else, that we were so focused on CanSino that we didn't listen to Providence. We were so focused on CanSino that we didn't reach out to other uh, vaccine producers. But from what have you what have you gathered, I guess, in that sense, in terms of what went sideways here and how much it impacted? everything else. Well, I I do think it's a little too simple an explanation to say that the only vaccine manufacturer the government was thinking about was CanSino. And then when that failed, they moved on to the others. And then conservatives in particular like to say they were late signing agreements with with the other manufacturers, which isn't exactly true. I mean, they were pretty early with Moderna. Uh, one of the first companies even to talk to Moderna, uh, uh, sorry, countries even to talk to Moderna, they were pretty early with Pfizer. They were late with the others. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, so, yeah, so the story, I think, is a little more complicated than than everything was on CanSino and then suddenly nothing was. Um, CanSino also had a pre-existing relationship with the Hazi University. It was not dreamed up last March, and it sure looked attractive, I'm sure, to the federal uh, government that was desperate, just like every other country, to have a domestic option. Um, but it was never the only option, and I don't think it's accurate to say that that's the case. Um, and I also think it's, it's worth pointing out um, that in this mad scramble, you had several players in the federal government, like not just people, but departments. You had the public health agency, you have Health Canada, of course, which is approving the vaccines. You have ISED, the innovation science and economic development folks who were, they were the ones who said no to Providence. Um, and then you have the procurement department uh, led by Anita Anand. And, um, you know, they all try to be on the same page, but it, this is a big bureaucracy. There's a lot happening. And um, governments with, with big, strong departments aren't exactly known, whether it's before the pandemic or during the pandemic, for, um, you know, perfect communication. So I think there was probably just uh, in those early days madness trying to understand who was doing what and uh, obviously, a, you know, a better job could have been done. But you, uh, yeah, I'd love to spend a couple hours talking to a public administration expert on exactly what the <laughs> heck they could have done better when you have these four huge departments all working kind of on the same thing. Yeah. It's interesting, too. I mean, there's kind of a perception that unless your name is Chrissia Friedland, you don't really matter in cabinet. And procurement minister seems like an obscure position. But you certainly get the sense, and it really comes through in your piece, that uh, Anita Anand is is you know, for, for better or for worse, is definitely very hands-on and has been really central in, in all of this. How, how important has she been in her role here? My understanding is she is pretty important. She's the first point of contact with, with these vaccine manufacturers. She's the one who texts them. Um, the prime minister now is starting to talk about how much he's also on the phone with CEOs. Um, and he doesn't just talk to the CEO of Pfizer Canada. He talks to the, the honcho globally, you know, and and that's, I guess, a little bit of an expectation now that Every world leaders seem to be uh, trading phone calls with the people who have these vaccines. But Anita Anand is the person in cabinet who was who was charged with doing this. And when she talked to me for the story, she was pretty insistent. And her, her tone doesn't exactly come through, you know, in quotes in a story. But but um, but I heard her and she said, I'm a minister of the crown. That's I'm a minister of the crown. And she sort of, you know, emphasized that. And it's a fair point. She mm-hmm. she is. And, uh, and 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 she is the leading those negotiations or she was last year. And uh, it, it doesn't mean that the prime minister does not have power. Of course, he does. And of course, the prime minister's office has their hand in every part of this effort. 
Um, but it, it's not to minimize the role that the procurement minister has played and, and a role she probably never expected to play when she was appointed. Um, and it's also a job that has had a ton of headaches for just about everyone who's ever held it. Um, but, you know, these are the people who buy ships and buy airplanes. This is the, the Phoenix paid debacle department. <laughs> it's not known to be an easy job. Um, but I don't I need on never would have guessed it would have been this difficult. One other interesting element to all of this, and I, I'd seen some some hints at this, and, and you report more directly on it, this question of whether the government misjudged when vaccines would be available, when they would start arriving. To what extent was the government caught off guard by the, the timeline here? Did vaccines get here and get approved a lot sooner than we thought they would? Well, I saw some reporting in The Globe, I guess just today, saying that the federal government based its negotiations for these vaccines on them being available only as early as this coming April, um, which sounds damning, except that when those discussions were first happening with Moderna uh, last June um, and they were going back and forth on that early clinical data and the kind of supply they could expect, um, even Moderna never suspected. They, in their wildest dreams, never guessed that before the end of the year, they would be injecting people with their vaccine. And so... The timelines here, it's easy to forget how, how, how long the lead time was thought to be and then how quick it actually ended up being. Like in the early days, people were talking about a vaccine coming in 18 months at the earliest, maybe right. five years, maybe 10 years. And so they came within 10 months. It was, it was unbelievable. Again, not to excuse the government because um, the, uh, other countries are receiving more vaccine doses than Canada. So other countries were able to negotiate that and not use the surprise, you know, the, the shock early delivery as a, as an excuse. Um, but it's, it's, it is, it is an, an asterisk worth noting at the bottom of a story like this, you know, uh, don't forget how impossible this seemed a year ago. <laughs> right. Well, and I mean, we're all watching this closely and we're seeing what's happening in other countries. So, you know, the perception uh, of this matters. This is obviously high stakes, as you point out. I think the government has given itself a bit of breathing room here. A lot of its forecasts are, are based on what's available from from Pfizer and from Moderna. Approval of AstraZeneca could make a difference. Approval of Johnson & Johnson and Ovavax could make a difference. So what's your sense of, of where the government's got some outs here and, and where this could still kind of um, be problematic for them? Well, if they do approve a few more vaccines and if those deals do kick in, uh, say, in April, and then they start coming in, in, in large volumes, April, May, and June. There could be a situation in June or July and then August in Canada where it was even funny ever for us to think we wouldn't all be vaccinated before the end of the year, right? It's yeah. Again, time could play a trick on us and we could forget that in January and in February we were going through this dark period of time. Um, on the other hand, if there are supply issues and if there's some sort of weakness in these contracts that truly does have Canada at the, the back of the line, especially in the case of, of a supply disruption. Um, if they miss those March, uh, end of March Q1 targets and they don't have 6 million doses for 3 million Canadians, then that's going to be a bad look. And that is possible depending on the supply chains that are fueling the vaccine manufacturers' supply. Um, and then if they miss some other ramp up, like they talk a lot about this ramp up in April when uh, Moderna and Pfizer are going to be sending even more doses and then, and then they allude to the, as you said, these future approvals for AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson. If if none of that happens, then not only is it politically a bad look for the Liberals, but I mean, you know, it, that puts Canada in a pretty 
pretty bad position where a lot of other countries will have uh, been able at some point in some way to return to some sort of business as usual, um, at least to some degree, and Canada mm-hmm. could still be stuck where we are now, kind of in these intermittent, un- uncertain lockdowns where we, we don't know quite when we're going to be able to, you know, walk into a store again without be- being nervous yeah. about being around other people. Well, it's a fascinating deep dive in into uh, all elements of this story. It's uh, up at mcleans.ca. Nick, again, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate that. Thanks for having me. All right. All the best. Nick Taylor Vasey, he's uh, an associate editor of McLean's Magazine. He's the author of this piece, A Call to Arms. It's called Inside Canada's Impossibly High Stakes Rush to Lock Down Tens of Millions of Doses of the Most Sought After Product on Earth. And so he talks to to uh, all sides of this, right? Speaks to, to those in government, uh, those who have been involved in this process, speaks to Providence and some of these other companies and uh, experts in this field. So it pulls together a lot of different voices. And yeah, if you want a great starting point in understanding, you know, what led up to to where we are now, the decisions that were made or not made throughout last year, it's it's a great place to start. McLean's.ca is the website. So a bit of a surprise announcement. I, I think we knew that the Alberta government was going to address the coal policy controversy this week. We're expecting some changes, but I don't know if we expected a, a complete uh, climb down here. So the Alberta government saying that they are going back to the 1976 coal policy and all of those restrictions that that entailed, but saying that they want to embark on a, a more consultative, more transparent process. So they haven't given up on the idea, maybe, of, of changing the approach here, but maybe recognizing that the way they went about it uh, did not go over well. So joining us uh, for some reaction uh, to all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Katie Morrison, who is a conservation director with CPAWS, Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, Southern Alberta. Uh, Katie, great to have you back with us. You're welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Well, let me get your reaction, whether you were, were surprised by this announcement today and uh, how you felt about what, what you heard from the minister. Yeah, I, I was surprised. I think, um, you know, we've seen in, in their previous reactions that they were trying to divert the conversation away from uh, the from the coal policy. But um, today they have, uh, you know, really, really stepped back and, and um, are, are stating that they will reinstate uh, the coal policy. And so... You know, I think that is um, a really positive announcement. I think that's really due to the fact that so many thousands of people across Alberta um, were so engaged uh, to, to opposing uh, open pit mining in, in our Rockies. Um, and, and I think it's also positive that they have uh, announced that they plan to un- undertake public consultation on the development of a new policy. Uh, and I think that's um, both of those things are, are really positive, and I think they'll be really important for Albertans to be um, engaged in those processes. Um, but, of course, because there's always a but, um, a few things that were also mentioned in today's announcement were quite concerning. Well, tell us more about those, then. Yeah, so I think there was a couple um, pieces that stood out for me. I think um, one of them is that uh, this announcement um, um, doesn't address some of the, the coal issues that are happening outside of Category 2 land. So, you know, I think the rescission of the coal policy and the pushback on that was really uh, eye-opening for Albertans to understand what is what is happening as far as coal in our, in our headwaters. Uh, and I think a lot of the pushback was not just around Category 2 lands, but really about 
uh, the future of coal in all areas of our Rocky Mountains. Um, and the other uh, piece that I think was um, concerning and, and quite inappropriate is that they are allowing any um, of the exploration permits that were previously approved to go forward. Um, they see there's six. We're still figuring out exactly which ones um, they're, those, those refer to. But we know that that's causing a lot of damage on the ground right now. Um, and while we as a province are having this conversation about um, what the future of coal and the future of our Rocky Mountains are, uh, I think that, there should, that that activity should not be allowed to go forward. Well, it's interesting because the government claims that of those six projects, uh, four of them actually began under the, the previous or under the policy we've now gone back to, that, that 1976 coal policy. Mm-hmm. But two of them were approved in in that period in between May and now. So we don't know when those were approved. As you say, we're, we're not sure which these six are even. No, and I think part of that is, you know, uh, I think we, we could find the two that were approved um, since the rescission, and I think those I think those are um, Cabin Ridge and Elan down in the south. Um, but we also knew that we also know that the, the coal companies knew the rescission of this policy was coming long before we did. We've seen that in right. their communication and investor reports. Um, and so I think you know they had the opportunity to apply for exploration permits before the rescission, and and were ready to shortly after. And I think that. You know, if we are saying that we're taking a step back and looking at where coal and is and is not appropriate um, in our Rocky Mountains, that that is that those um, coal companies who had that advantage of of knowing this change was coming um, should not be able to proceed with those damaging activities until we um, have had a chance to to hold the consultation and that and a new um, stronger uh, policy is put in place. Well, let's break down these these different stages because the, as the government points out that you know a, a lease does not necessarily allow for exploration. Exploration does not necessarily mean uh, the development or a project has been approved. So, you know how how significant are these distinctions here? We talk about the leases, we talk about exploration, and we talk about actual development, actual projects. Well, I think you know the leases are, as you say, the most speculative. They are they are companies. Um, putting sort of a stake on where they want to be able to explore and, and look for minerals. Um, although a lot of that was done pre-coal um, policy rescission. So so we know that there is coal out there. That's why there is interest in these areas. Um, and then it does move on to exploration if they get exploration permits. Um, we've been really concerned all along about the process of getting those permits. They've been quite rushed through. Um, there is not opportunity for public consultation um, or input onto that um, in any meaningful way. Um, and they're, they're, they're very damaging. You know, just, just in the southwest, um, I believe about 725 kilometers of new road was built last summer, as well as I think about, or sorry, 200, 225 kilometers of, of new road and about 725 new drill pads. All in a all in a relatively small area, so we know just the exploration is very concerning to people and having impacts on on the lands and waters. And companies don't go through that process unless they have some certainty that that they would be able to proceed um, with actual coal mines. That you know that's why we didn't see um, much much activity in those areas until the last year or so. Right. So in terms of these these Category 2 lands, I mean, 
what, let's let's go back and talk about what the the main concerns were here. And I know mountaintop removal is something the minister addressed today. That was a big one. You know, the potential impact on, on uh, water supplies was a big one. There are some sensitive areas certainly along the eastern slope. So, what was it we were were guarding against? And and how much of this is just about saying we don't want any coal development in Alberta? Well, I think you know the the minister is saying no mountaintop removal, um, and I think I would really like some clarity from her uh, what that means. Does that also include open pit mining? Does that all does include strip mining? All of those are you know big holes in the ground um, for, for to extract coal um, that have those massive effects on the land and on the waters and and um, potential for things like selenium release and pollution. Um, and she also stated to me that that they are committed to a, a, a coal economy moving forward in this province. And so I, I'm really concerned that um, they are committing to consultation um, and at the same time um, saying that, they, that there will be new coal mines. And I think that that's a little bit premature until we have a province, as a province, have been able to have this conversation uh, about that entire landscape. You know, like the, the coal policy was created 40 years ago um, and, and we do know more now than we did back then, but we know more about how sensitive and important these areas are, not just in Category 2. Um, we know from a, a species at risk perspective, from um, climate change, from water quality concerns, uh, all of those have become more important, um, as well as, you know, the value of these landscapes for recreation and, and other economies and and for for people getting out and enjoying them. So all of those, I think, are more important and more topical today across the entire region, um, regardless of categories. And I think that is what we need to be moving towards of, you know, this, this opportunity for Albertans to re-envision the future of our Rocky Mountains and foothills um, that better protects water sources, wildlife, landscapes um, that are really part of part of our identity. Can we balance all of that? I mean, are there areas uh, of this province then where it would be uh, more appropriate uh, for this kind of development? Is is there a need still for uh, Alberta to to allow for the development of coal that's used to produce steel? Certainly, something that, that remains in demand. Is do you think there's a balance that can be struck here? Uh, I think we need to look at um, the real value of these places. So, you know, if if we look at um, all of the values of, of of the Rocky Mountains, both both environmental values, if we're talking, you know, wildlife and species at risk, um, social values like water, uh, and, and even economic values of what types of industries and, and economies um, putting coal in these areas would would replace and, and destroy these other um, economic opportunities. Uh, and, and really, you know, I I can't imagine that um, new coal mines in in that region would come out as a benefit over the risks of losing all of those things. But I think that is a conversation that we need to have as a province. Um, And I think we need to look at that as more than environment versus economy, because I I think a lot of these places are so valuable for other things um, that it is that it is not such a a clear balance or trade off. I think that um, the benefits probably or the the risks probably largely outweigh the benefits in, in any areas along eastern slopes. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here. Uh, The government has pledged a a more transparent process this time around, and I guess we'll see if they hold to that. Katie, will be there. Appreciate your input on all this. Thanks for joining us here today. Great. Thank you. All right. Take care. That's uh, Katie Morrison uh, with CPAWS, Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, uh, Southern Alberta.
she is their conservation director. So they've been kind of at the forefront uh, of pushing back against the government and saying, look, this area in particular, the eastern slopes, these Category 2 lands, we've got some big concerns here. And why is it then that the mining companies had uh, way more advanced notice of these changes than anybody else in Alberta? So, look, I mean, we can point out all of this. Um, is, is it fair to, given that the government has acknowledged the mistake, the government has acknowledged that they're going to go back to the drawing board, the old policy is going to be put back in place, and they're going to take their time with this? Sure, they should have done that the first go-around. Welcome back. Look, no question that the last year or so has uh, been uh, really devastating to the airline industry. And uh, just as maybe there was some optimism going into 2021, there's there's a fresh round of uncertainty uh, with all the concern about uh, new variants uh, of this virus emerging. There's been a real effort, not just in Canada, but elsewhere to clamp down on international travel. So Canada's airlines have agreed to uh, stop flying routes to some sunny destinations. As you're well aware, the uh, federal government is putting in uh, new policies with regard to those who are returning from abroad. A lot of it uh, with the intent, it seems, of discouraging travel. And his concern about those variants is not likely to go away anytime soon. It, it does suggest that we're going to be dealing with this, at least in terms of international travel, as an issue for some time. So where does that leave the airlines? Maybe there's an opportunity once we start to get things under control, start to get people vaccinated, that domestic travel becomes an option. But of course, we've still got situations uh, in, in this country that, that would inhibit that, in particular, the Atlantic bubble. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, some of the challenges uh, the airline's facing and um, where we go from here. Uh, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, uh, Professor uh, Isabel uh, Dostelar, who's uh, Dean of Business at Memorial University, expert in aviation management. Uh, Professor uh, Dostelar, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, so in terms of the implication of these uh, latest uh, rules regarding returning travelers and getting tested and quarantining in hotels, what's your sense of uh, the kind of impact this is going to have on the airline industry? Oh, it's it's not good at all. You know, transportation is a challenge to start with in our country. Canada is a big country, low density of population, uh, very, very difficult under difficult under number num, normal circumstance to you know offer uh, uh, or, or give access to a, a an efficient uh, transportation network to remote communities to regions so in a situation like we're in today it's um it's it's it really is a catastrophe right and and we hear a lot about uh, all the evidently troubles airlines are in the uncertainty how long it will take before uh, things pick up again it's so difficult from a from a financial standpoint but it's damaging on all the networks as well you know airports are struggling quite a bit and in um, remote communities and regions it could take a while before you know things pick up again before uh, these uh, regular flights to uh, larger airports, um, you know, start start to operate again. So a really, really, really difficult situation for for our country. 
Yeah, not a lot of uh, good options at this point. I know there's there's certainly talk uh, that's been going on between the federal government and the airlines about some financial assistance. But, you know, beyond more bailouts, what, what more do you think we can do at this point? It's, it's difficult, and there's been lots of comments uh, criticizing the federal government for not really, uh, you know, uh, stepping up and, and doing sa- the same things that other countries are doing. Uh, I suspect that negotiations right now are not necessarily easy, right? Uh, the federal government probably does not want to, uh, to bail air- airline out without some conditions, you know, such as uh, paying back customers for all the, uh, the, the, the tickets that were, that were purchased, uh, maintaining regional connection, and also, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult proposition when an airline like Air Canada had such good years, you know, uh, recently, and, it, and I've been quite profitable and you know people have made money uh, uh top managers and so on so it's um it's the idea that taxpayer money would go into supporting airlines when we seem to be sharing the loss but but never really sharing the profit so it's a um, it's a tough situation i i i understand that it's very frustrating for actors in the industry not to see a more direct help from government, but I can also understand where the, the government is, is, is coming from. So in the meantime, uh, you know, as, as we put more rules in place regarding international travel, whether there's any kind of opportunity for some encouragement of domestic travel, but given the concern at the moment with uh, interprovincial travel, obviously the Atlantic bubble remains an issue. I don't know if domestic travel is necessarily a viable alternative at this point, is it? I don't think it is, because how it works is that airlines normally uh, make money on the international routes, right? And that's how they can subsidize subsidize uh, regional connections, right? The idea is that you take all these people in remote communities and you all, you know, you take them with regional fr- flights, you bring them to the hub and from them, from, the, from their, their people, you know, uh, travel uh, throughout the world. But when this is not exist, existent, it's very difficult to, to subsidize all the, uh, the regional uh, network. So no, it's, 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 uh, if you are, you know, in Newfoundland right now, we are on an island, right? So it feels pretty isolated. Right, uh, the, the uh, local airport, the airport here in St. John's, has lost the daily uh, connection to Toronto, so that has been an enormous blow. So, no, very difficult situation for all the actors uh, 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 in the sector. And there's there's a trade-off, right? The better you do on 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 the the pandemic, uh, the tougher it is on the on the on the transportation network, really. Yeah, and I mean, I guess a lot rests then on, on the hope of uh, either some successful rollout of vaccines, maybe some big improvements in testing, some combination of the two. Is that what it's going to take ultimately? It's yes, but it, it also depends on how the traveling public will react, right? It depends on each and every one of us, right? Will we? 
go back to our normal habits? You know, will we uh, learn to live with that virus? And, you know, the vaccine is one tool that we have uh, together with masks and social distancing and so on and try to be as careful as possible while, while traveling. So if we feel safe enough, this is when things can pick up again. And frankly, when I discuss with other colleagues in the field, uh, some are saying, ah, it will be business as usual soon enough. You know, we all thought that after 9-11, we would never fly again, but we just had a, a number of security measures and, and there we are. So maybe if we, maybe if we can build the confidence and if we all get, uh, uh, you know, if we feel at ease, uh, we could revert to, to, you know, go back to our old habits and it's only... It, it's only if we travel that we will have a it's a chicken and the egg you know we we, we need to uh we need to use the, the travel system for the travel for the transportation system to be available and to be efficient so it a lot of it depends on 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 the traveling public and you know in terms of business travel, right? We've learned to uh, be much more efficient with all the video conferencing system and so on. So we now realize that, oh, we can achieve a lot from a distance, right? So there's this possibility that business uh, travel will not be as, uh, as, as, you know, popular as it was. Although, you know, you will always argue that Sometimes a handshake is necessary, right, to mm-hmm. to sort of develop trust between business partners. But there's a lot that, that you can achieve from a distance. So we'll have to see how uh, how business travel uh, evolves. Well, we'll leave it there, Professor. Appreciate your insight, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, take care. That's uh, Isabel uh, Dostler, uh, Dean of Business at uh, Memorial University, and uh, expert in aviation management. So, yeah, some big, big challenges facing the airline industry. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.